Hello and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rees and on each episode I investigate a different, weird and wonderful subject. And on this episode we are going to explore the curious case of a spectral nun. A spectral nun which was haunting a family, haunting their guests, haunting the dog even in a property in West Wales, and she was not alone. This is far from being a normal haunting. By all accounts, there were ghosts there which caused one woman to take a shotgun to bed to protect herself, and when the many investigators went looking for for clues, for evidence as to what was going on, they found secret rooms, they found skeletons, they even found one holy person they believe might have been bricked up alive. But I don't want to spoil any of the surprises quite yet, and that is all coming up on this episode. Now, our tale, this real-life ghost story, or ghost stories, takes place in the parish of Monkton, in what is now modern-day Pembrokeshire. And how appropriate is that? The ghost of a nun in Monkton. Now, this story comes courtesy of one of my favourite ghost hunters, if not my favourite ghost hunter. That is a man called Mr. Peter Underwood, who I have mentioned many a time on this podcast. Now, Peter Underwood, who recorded this in the 1970s, and he had it firsthand from the vicar of the old village at the time, a reverend called Tudor Evans, who lived at the old hall with his family. And that is where our tale begins, where this real-life ghost story kicks off. So, to begin at the beginning, the scene is set at the old hall in Moncton. And as anyone who has read any ghost stories ever will know, if a place has got old in the title, it is a prime candidate to be haunted. And that is very much the case here, or so it would appear, the old hall in Moncton, which is indeed very old. So old, in fact, that it was once a part, we are told, of an ancient priory which was founded way back in 10. 98. So this place has seen a heck of a lot of history, lots of changes, lots of comings and goings, and in particular from a religious point of view, and we are indeed in search of a spectral nun, but from a religious point of view, some of the rooms would once have been cells for the monks to dwell in. And while describing the place Underwood does point out, which I think is quite an important little detail, he does note that there is a large groined crypt which had a sombre atmosphere. There's a large crypt there with a sombre atmosphere. If that's not asking for ghosts, I don't know what is. Which might go some way to explaining what is going to happen next. Because in our first piece of paranormal activity at the location, Underwood records that the Reverend was repeatedly disturbed by heavy knocking 
upon his bedroom door at four o'clock every morning. Ghosts, as they say, are punctual four o'clock on the dot every morning. At first, he hurried to see who was there, but as he put his foot to the floor, the knocking ceased. So it was almost as if he was being observed as well, I guess, which makes things extra creepy because this, whatever it was, knew that when he stirred, when he rose from the bed and touched the ground, that was the time to stop knocking. So not only was there this this, this, this paranormal noise, there appeared to be a paranormal set of eyes watching the reverend's movements. Of course, as he was up and about, he would go and explore, he'd go out the door, he would find no source for it, and after returning to bed, would sleep soundly for the rest of the night. So it wanted to get his attention. It appeared to want him to get out of bed, but nothing more. It would then stop. There was no there was no harm as such. It was yes, an inconvenience, quite a scary inconvenience, almost like an unwanted alarm clock at four in the morning. But after rising, after going back to bed, that was the end of that. Well for now at least, anyway, because there is more. There was one room in particular which the family dog would shun. Now, this has been a popular topic on this podcast over the months and and years now, where I've looked at dogs who react differently to potentially supernatural activity. There was one, quite a nice one at Christmas time in the Castle Hotel in Neath, where the dog went crazy, darting from room to room to room. This is the opposite. The dog will not go in the room under any circumstances, no matter what time of day or night we are told. It doesn't matter who is with the dog, whether the dog's alone, whether all of the family are in there, it will not go in. It refuses to enter that room but is more than happy to go in every other room in the house. And maybe it wasn't just the dog being a bit weird, because there is some corroboration, human corroboration, that things weren't entirely right in there, because we're told that on one particular day, the vicar's daughter, no name given, but the vicar's daughter, saw, and I'll quote, a glow of light a glow of light when she was outside the room. She was on the landing. But when she looked again, and I'll I'll quote this bit again, she distinctly saw the outline of the head and shoulders of a cowled figure that seemed to be leaning out of the window and apparently waving as though to attract attention. A cowled figure leaning out of the window and waving. And this cowled figure, maybe it brings to mind a monk. Maybe it brings to mind the name of the parish once more, Monkton. Is this entity putting the monk in Monkton? Is it some other cowled figure? All we do know for certain is that the dog certainly did not want to spend any time in its presence. And the paranormal reports do not end there. There is more to come, and our next witness was not really given the option, given the choice of whether or not to spend time in this entity's presence. And this is something which does crop up again and again, and it it does baffle me a little bit. But 
on another occasion, the Reverend had a friend staying in the house with him and his family, and he chose to put his friend in the haunted room for the night. And, surprise, surprise, they are disturbed in some way. People keep doing this again and again, and they act shocked when their guests get spooked in some way. Now, in this case... The room even came to be called the Haunted Room, so he, he has no excuse. He can't pretend he doesn't know it's called the Haunted Room. But the friend here, and I'll quote this again, I think it's important to get Underwood's descriptions correct with these things, but Underwood said he heard the rustling of garments moving round and round his bed. So the kind of sounds we would usually, in these instances, associate with a female ghost, it's usually some kind of lady in white, lady in black, lady in grey, walking around, rustling their clothing, their garments, and in this case, it appears to be walking in a circular motion around the bed again and again. And this guest did try to catch a glimpse of this, what they imagined to be some kind of female ghost circle in their bed. I mean, it could have been a rat for all I know, but they believed there was something there. And to do that, they tried lighting their candle. But no matter what they did, as soon as they lit it, the light was immediately and mysteriously snuffed out. So they presumably, they spent the night in darkness, unable to, to light their candle, unable to find a source for this, this distraction. But I'm assuming it wasn't that loud, that disturbing, that it stopped him from sleeping all night. I don't know. But what I do know is that the activity now is mounting. Clearly, something is not quite right in this place. And as it turns out, Underwood does appear to have uncovered some evidence which might help explain things. And this evidence was discovered inside the church at Moncton. Now, the church in Moncton was, was or is dedicated to St. Nicholas, the patron saint of Russia, amongst many other things. And of course, nowadays, when we think of St. Nicholas, old St. Nick, we think of jolly Father Christmas, Sean Corrin, Santa Claus. But as I am recording this during a mini heatwave in Wales here at the height of summer, let us not dwell on the Christmas season, the festivities yet. Let us not dwell on Nadolig. There is plenty of time for the Mary Lloyd to come along and get her cakes and ale later in the year. For now, let us return to Moncton. Let us return to St. Nicholas. And we are going to go off on a slight tangent here. Bear with me on this, because we are going to leap from Pembrokeshire over the seas to one of my favourite, favourite countries, over to Italia. Because Underwood makes a connection between this church and the Basilica of St. Nicola in Italy, as St. Nicholas is known over the water, and that is where his bones are said to rest in the crypt. And these bones are said to exude a pure water, which signifies the sanctity of God. His bones exude water in honour of the Lord. And, like I said, bear with me on this, but we are going to move on to the Medici family. And I've mentioned before how 
Art history is another one of my big passions. I didn't expect to be shoehorning the Medicis into an episode about ghosts in Pembrokeshire, I'll be honest with you, but thank you, Peter Underwood, for giving me the chance. But he says that the golden balls, there were three golden balls on the Medicis' arms. They were taken off, and if anyone is familiar with the logo of pawnbrokers nowadays, or even if you do an internet search for the symbol of a pawnbroker, you will see outside of a pawnbroker's shop these three golden balls which were once the arms of the Medici family were not just random golden balls and they weren't they weren't David Beckham fans or anything many, many centuries before he was born. But in fact, they're derived from the account of St. Nicholas saving the daughters of an impoverished father with bags of gold, hence these golden balls. Now, why am I waffling on about bones and golden balls and Father Christmas? Well, coming back to Moncton and coming back to the priest's room at the church, at St. Nicholas's church, we are told that, and once again, I'm going to quote this because this is definitely something I cannot corroborate myself or in any way confirm or deny. But we are told by Peter Underwood that in this priest's room, in inverted commas, the remains of the body of a kneeling woman were found bricked up in the wall. So just to repeat that, in the priest's room, in St. Nicholas Church, according to Peter Underwood, the remains of the body of a kneeling woman were found bricked up in the wall. Now, the vicar who had had all of these experiences and who had spoken to Underwood about them, and I'm very glad he did because it's thanks to him doing so that I can talk about them nowadays. Now, he had a theory and he believed that she had been, you guessed it, a nun. So the phantom nun of the title he believed were these remains found bricked up in the room. And his reasoning behind this was that she had committed some sin that was so terrible it kept her spirit earthbound. She had done something so bad she was trapped on earth. And Underwood does point out that while the church was a ruin which had been restored. But back in the olden days, it would, once before being rebuilt, have been attached to an ancient Benedictine priory. And this is where all of the pieces of the puzzle, all of the jigsaw pieces, start to fit into place. And he says, it is not impossible, and I agree, it is not impossible that had these nuns been there, which, which yes, they were, one of their duties was to summon the other nuns to service, to devotion, at an early hour each day. In fact, the nuns would be summoned at four o'clock in the morning. But had this nun done something so bad, had she committed some kind of terrible sin, which saw her turn to St. Nicholas for forgiveness. And now her spirit remains trapped in Pembrokeshire, where it continues to summon her sisters to prayer. Her sisters, who have long gone, and instead 
she summons whoever sleeps in that haunted room that even the dog will not enter. It's like one big, lovely mystery all coming together at the end. It's like the end of an Agatha Christie novel or something. And Peter Underwood certainly thinks so. And to wrap all of this up, this question as to whether or not this spectral nun was indeed calling her sisters to prayer, he says that in some mysterious way, her ghost continued to do so. So, as far as Underwood is concerned, that mystery is wrapped up nicely. But our tale does not end there. Underwood's account ends there. But just before I started recording this episode, I did some quick research on the internet to check the current status, the current state of the old hall in Moncton. And I'm pleased to report that, yes, it's still there. It's a grade one listed building. Also, it is available as holiday accommodation. You can go and stay there. And I should stress, all of the reviews are five stars, glowing reviews. Nobody has complained about spectral nuns or anything. So I am certain if you are thinking of booking a holiday there, you will have a lovely time and will not be disturbed. But as I was looking for any modern day accounts, I discovered a little newspaper article which references a lot of Underwood's material. But there are some little extras in it, which maybe they've been discovered since, or I I don't know where they've emerged from. But I think if you choose to believe these extra bits of information, it does shed a different light on the account. Now, it tells us that when the Priory Church was being restored in the late 19th century, in the Victorian times, many secrets were revealed and some gruesome discoveries were made. Yes, gruesome. And while Underwood focused on this one body, the remains of this supposed nun, in fact, masses, to quote, masses of human bones were actually found under the floor. And this complete skeleton, which Underwood tells us is a nun, others believe was a monk. And more than that, the position they were found in while the nun was thought to be praying for her sins suggests that they were interred alive. So buried alive, be it a monk, be it a nun, amongst a mass of other bones. All in all, I think they were correct to call it gruesome. It does indeed sound like a gruesome scene. And while it's also fascinating, eerie, terrifying, I imagine for those who discovered it, it was a gruesome sight to behold. But how does it add to this ghost story? What does it tell us about this spectral nun? Was she rather a spectral monk? Was she someone else entirely? Are there hundreds of potential spirits out there amongst these many bones? Maybe in the end, the answer is that some things are best left undiscovered. Some things are best left buried. And finally, this article, which I found on the the website 10B Today website, but finally, it also says that the Moncton Priory Farm nearby has also had sightings of a monk-like figure, which, to quote, made its presence felt like a wind rushing past. 
And I love this little detail where we are told that a grandmother of the narrator, so we are going back a few generations now, but the atmosphere there was so bad as a result, they would sleep with a shotgun by their side. How many ghosts make people sleep with a shotgun next to them? It's a lovely little detail to that ghost story. And as well as the atmosphere, we are told that on the farm, this supposed ghostly monk would move things around, bedclothes would be pulled off, doors would be rattled, so much that in the 1920s, the building was actually exorcised. When all else fails, when even a shotgun can't keep away the ghosts, Call in the professionals, call in the exorcists or the exorcist to get the job done. And as with the church just down the road where a gruesome discovery was made, here a macabre discovery, slightly more gothic, a macabre discovery was found because a few years before, a hidden passage or room was discovered and when the wall was knocked through, they discovered a skeleton surrounded by oyster shells. And as with our last tale, there are lots of similarities here, but as with the last tale, this skeleton was also attributed to a holy person. This person, this skeleton, was believed to have been a monk. A monk appropriately named Oyster John. What a lovely name for a monk, Oyster John. And it was Oyster John that they were trying to exorcise. They were trying to get rid of. And we are told that afterwards, he did indeed calm down a little bit, but not entirely. He still wandered about, but maybe he cut out the, the banging and the pulling bedclothes off and things. Maybe it was a, a, a compromise from the monk. It's like he's saying, look, I'm still here but I won't be as bad as I was. And that is the tale of Oyster John, and that wraps up our accounts of spectral religious figures haunting Moncton in Pembrokeshire. And as mentioned, a huge thank you to Tenby today for supplying those additional bits of information at the end there. And of course, a huge thank you to Peter Underwood, who has supplied me with hours and hours of reading pleasure. And of course, you can check out my other episodes in which we look at some of Underwood's research. The last one was a couple of months ago, episode 51, with The Golden Ghost. That's a, a great story. The Golden Ghost on episode 51. And I am sure there are going to be more Underwood episodes in the future. And if you don't want to miss any of them, be sure to hit the subscribe button and you will never miss an episode ever. And if you have any thoughts on those tales, maybe you're from Moncton. Maybe you think it's a monk. Maybe you think it's a nun. Maybe you think it's both. Maybe it's a nun in the church and a monk in the farm. Who knows? But if you have any ideas, I'm quite easy to find online. I'm quite easy to track down on social media. And it's always lovely to hear from people. And on that note, it just leaves me to say... Thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varion am grando. I've been Mark Rice. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast. It's the best. It's the beautiful. It's the only Ghosts and Folklore podcast beaming to you from Wales to the world. Until next time, Nostar. No